In a powerfully dramatic courtroom moment, five-year-old Kai Lee Harriet sat in her wheelchair and looked directly at the man who had just pleaded guilty to firing the shot that had paralyzed her three years before. Her face was stained with tears as she spoke to the 29-year-old Anthony Warren, who had fired three rounds at the house where she and her sister were sitting on a porch singing songs. One of the bullets severed her spine, left her paralyzed for life at the age of three. What you'd done to me was wrong, she said to the man seated just a few feet away. But I still forgive. That Boston trial was videotaped, and Kai's uh, emotional scene has been replayed on television and over the Internet. It's been in newspapers. Uh, Kylie, who is now six, has been in People magazine and featured on Inside Edition. She's got a free trip to Disney World. And we're all drawn to the little girl and her, her inspirational act of forgiveness. But today, I want to change the focus and not focus on Kylie, but instead spend a little bit of time with her assailant, the shooter, the convicted criminal, most likely a gang member with a long history of illegal acts. How do you feel about spending the day with him? This really isn't about forgiveness. It's about acceptance. The truth is that man who shot and paralyzed little Kai represents a class of people that we don't want to be around. We would rather avoid them. We would rather not go to their house, and we would rather not have supper with them. I uh, speak at times in different groups, and I talk about a bias continuum. And uh, I'm a little bit strapped to the pulpit here this morning, or I would be moving about. But if you imagine over on my right here, the extreme end on the, uh, on the spectrum of prejudice, if you will, and there, there is that end that we would just call hatred. Whether it's for someone's religion or their social status or the way they look or their color of their skin or whatever it is, someone who is different from us. And on this spectrum, the worst level of bias that we can have is open hatred. These are the people that do violence against other people because of who they are. Imagine that you have a house vacant next to you. And you hear that that family is moving in. That open kind of, <clears throat> of hatred burns the house down before you have those people move in. Or after they move in, burns the house down. But if you move a step Away from that, you come to what we would just call genuine prejudice. And there's an awful lot of people who are caught in that category where you, you don't burn down the house and you don't openly commit any violence or anything like that, but you feel it inside. You dislike those people. And you do everything you can to make them feel unwelcome as your neighbors. Moving a step over in that Spectrum, we come to the word that I call tolerance. Now, in our society, we generally regard tolerance as a good thing. But tolerance in this regard is what you do to mosquitoes. You tolerate them. You don't like them, but you put up with them. That kind of tolerance, that kind of level of bias, where the person moves in next door to you and you allow it, but you don't like it, you put up with it. You certainly don't make those people feel welcome. And then you finally get to the positive side of the spectrum, 
what I would call acceptance, where you do accept those people. You are accepting of people. You, inv- you, you include them. Uh, you, you go and welcome them to the neighborhood, that kind of a thing. And that's where most of us in our discussions about being accepting is mostly where we stop. But we can do better than that. Because beyond acceptance, we can get to inclusion. Inclusion. And now it's not just accepting and welcoming someone to your neighborhood, but actually going out and saying, hey, the house next to me is for sale. You should look at it. And there's a lot for, for entities, churches, cities, governments, to figure out on this idea of inclusion. Because often we do things in our churches, in our organizations, in our communities that are unintentionally exclusive, and we keep people out. And we need to think to ourselves, how can I make everybody feel welcome to come to this event? How do I make the handicapped people feel comfortable to come to this event? How do I make people who don't have English as a primary language feel comfortable to come to my event? And we think in terms of inclusivity. But you know there's even a step beyond that. Because we can, if we really invest ourselves, get to the level of understanding where I really understand what it's like to be you. And you really understand what it's like to be me, even though I come from a different culture, a different background, a different race, a different religion. We walk in a mile in each other's shoes, as it is said. And you know this spectrum of bias is an age-old issue. Oh, we read so many times in the Bible about the Jews and the Samaritans. You know, Jesus was not supposed to talk to that woman at the well. He was not supposed to do that. She was a member of the half-breed ugly stepsisters for the Jews. That's the way they regarded them. And you know, Ruth was never supposed to marry Boaz. The Moabitess was not supposed to marry into the Jewish line. And Ananias was not supposed to go into the house of Judas to visit Saul, who was persecuting all the Christians. That should have never happened. And Peter was not supposed to go to Cornelius' house, a Roman centurion. That should never have happened. But thank God those things did happen. Because Jesus gave the example of reaching out to the despised people when he reached out to the Samaritans, which would be followed up by Philip right after Pentecost. And when Ruth married Boaz, they had a son. Bible trivia. Who knows his name? Obed. Chapter 2. Obed had a son. His name was Jesse. Jesse had many sons, the youngest of which was named David, who became a direct descendant of the Messiah, or who was a, the Messiah would be a descendant of. In other words, if Ruth and Boaz had not gotten married, It was through their offspring that the Messiah came and was blessed. And what if Ananias had not gone to Saul and blessed him and helped him receive back his sight and got him started on his missionary journey to the Gentiles? But today I want to talk instead of those about Peter and Cornelius. So I invite you in your Bibles to turn with me to Acts chapter 10. I am not sure, but I think this is officially the first time I've had to do this at your church. (laughs) Acts chapter 10. 
And I'm going to uh, speed read this a little bit. Um, it, it sets up the story and tells you about this man named Cornelius. He's a, he's a centurion of the Italian regiment. Okay, so he's a Roman. He's a soldier. And he is in a position of authority. A centurion has 100 men who report to him as a general rule. So here is a man that to the Jews would re- be regarded as an oppressor. Right? He's from the other side. And uh, it's, it describes him. He says that he is one who seeks God, and, uh, and he is very benevolent, and he prays, and he fasts, and an angel comes to him and says, you need to send somebody to go get Peter. <clears throat> and so he does. He gets uh, one of his soldiers, and he gets two of his uh, servants, and he explains everything to them, and he, they, he sends them to, to Joppa to go find Peter. So they come to Peter, and then, of course, we come to the story where Peter, at the same time this is going on, Peter is getting hungry. It's the middle of the day. He wants lunch. He's up on the housetop, and all of a sudden he falls into a trance, and he has this vision of a sheet being let down from heaven by the four corners, and it's full of all kinds of creeping things and birds and you name it, right? And the words come to him in verse uh, 13. It says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. We know he's hungry. It's lunchtime. And Peter says, No, I don't do that. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice comes to him again. It says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this happens three times, and then the sheet is taken back up into heaven. Now, it's interesting, in verse 17, it says, Peter has no idea what this means. He has no clue what this vision that he just had means. He's pondering this. He's trying to figure out what this means in verse 17. At the same time, the men show up at the door asking for him. So Peter's thinking about the vision. It says, the Spirit said to him, in verse 19, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go to them. Doubt nothing. I sent them. And he does. Ellen White says he does so reluctantly. (laughs) He's not so sure about this. And so he comes down and he says, I'm the man you're seeking. I'm imagining that this is uh, done with a bit of trepidation here. That Peter comes down, he's got a Roman soldier and two others who are the servant of the centurion, the servants of the centurion, and he says, I'm I'm the one you're looking for. Why are you looking for me? This sounds a little scary, doesn't it? The the Roman centurion sending for him, I'm the one. What what, what do you want? This was not done with with great confidence. This was not done saying, I know God's about to work a miracle. This was done with great concern. So Peter goes with him. They tell him the story. He lodges him for the night. The next day, it's about 32 miles journey uh, from from Joppa to Caesarea. And so the next day they set out. Peter, Peter lodges him for the night. And they set out. And it takes two days to get to Caesarea. And they come to Cornelius. And now we're dropping down to verse 24. It's interesting because while Cornelius was waiting, he's waiting very faithfully. What is he doing? He knows how long it takes to get over to Joppa and how long to get back. And while he's waiting for that to happen, he gathers his friends and family together to hear what Peter's going to say to them. He's not doubting that Peter's going to come. He is confident that Peter is going to come. So he's getting all these people together. Peter comes in. Cornelius immediately falls at his feet. Peter says, stand up. I myself am also a man. That's verse 26. And uh, many are gathered together then. And, uh, and Peter says, why, why have you sent for me? Verse 30, Cornelius tells him. He gives him the story. He says, I was told to ask for you, so tell us. W- what do you got to share? 
Verse 34, Peter opens his mouth and says, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. And he goes on and he explains the gospel message to them. Now, in my Bible, uh, it talks about this barrier. If I can find the exact words where it says... Peter, going in there to his house, was illegal. It was, but it was illegal according to Jewish law. He was not to go into the house of an unclean, uncircumcised man. And yet he did. And then continuing on in the story... He tells them all the gospel message. The Holy Spirit falls on those people who are hearing. And uh, Peter baptizes them right at the end of chapter 10. Very interesting what happens then in in chapter 11. The apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And Peter came to Jerusalem. Those of the circumcision, in other words, those Jewish Christians, those Jewish Christians contended with him saying, you went into uncircumcised men. You ate with them! Exclamation mark! What are you thinking about? The bias is very strong. The prejudice is rooted deep in these people. And Peter explains it. He tells them the whole story. He says, I saw a trance. He explained. Now he interprets the vision. He now, he now understands that vision entirely. It had nothing to do with what you eat or don't eat. It had what to do with who you go to and who you don't go to with the gospel message. And he explains that thoroughly to them. And he explains how the Holy Spirit came upon them as they listened. And he explains how they were baptized. And then we get to the scripture verse in verse 17. If therefore God gave them the same gift he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? This is his directive. This is his doing. Who am I to stand in the way of that? And yet, don't we all do just that all the time? We, in our biases, however they are, we want to do God's work for him. We want to decide who it is that the gospel message should go to and who it isn't. At least in our lives, who it is that I'm going to go to and, uh, and minister to and who it is I'm going to avoid. We sometimes want to help God make that decision. Cornelius and Peter were on opposite ends of the spectrum. Illegal for Peter to go to his house. He is of the oppressive nation. He is of the Romans. He is a soldier. He is a soldier of soldiers. This Cornelius. Every reason Peter should have not wanted to go anywhere near him. But through that unlikely union, God began spreading the gospel message to the Gentiles, especially in Rome. So let me ask you this morning, who is your Cornelius? Who is your Cornelius? Because we all have them.
Would you ever let a felon come up here and speak in your church? Would you ever let someone who had taken another man's life give the message? A registered sex offender? An alcoholic? How about someone who had been to prison? I'm not sure about your church, but I know in our church at New London, we've had all of those speak in our pulpit. 1975, Alan Randall was 16 years old when he was out committing some burglaries down in southern Wisconsin. And uh, there was a, a small, one of those little village police departments that have a chief and an officer or two, and that's all that works there. And he kind of watched them, and he knew what the pattern was for the police. So he watched until the two officers who were on duty got in a squad car and drove away. And he decided to burglarize the police department. They should have some good stuff there. So he burglarized the police department. And the two officers came back much quickly, much more quickly than he anticipated. It surprised him. And Alan Randall was armed as he was committing this burglary. And as those two officers pulled up to the station, he opened fire on them while they were still in the squad car and killed both of them. Then he got in the bullet-ridden and bloody squad car and drove away and committed more burglaries and eventually was apprehended and went to court. His defense attorney uh, entered a plea of, uh, that, he was, uh, that, he was, that he was not guilt, guilty by mental defect, that he didn't have the mental capacity to form uh, a judgment about the wrongness of his actions at the time because he, because he had a multiple personality disorder, a schizophrenia disorder. And the prosecutor made no objection to that defense attorney's claim. And as a result, Alan Randall was never sent to prison, but instead was sent to mental health institutions, one of which was Winnebago Mental Health right here in our county. So that's all the way back in 1975. More recently, Alan Randall has been petitioning to be let out of this mental health facility. As it turns out, he was never diagnosed with, with an anti-mental mental health illness. The doctor is at the facilities where he has been for decades, believe that he's actually just fine. But earlier this year, they agreed that Alan Randall needed to be let out of his confinement. And he wants to move to Nina. Now, do you suppose that's hard for me? You know, one of the hardest things about being both a police officer and an elder in the church is when you arrest one of your members of your church. I've done that several times. And that's an awkward position to be in. We had a family up at uh, New London 
who had quite a few conflicts with the law up there. And that's an understatement. And, uh, and this one young man who was a teen was getting in lots and lots of trouble, was uh, hanging out with the drug dealers, and our officers up there were getting very frustrated with this family. And I kept reaching out to him. I liked the kid. He was from our church. He had been raised in very difficult circumstances. It was amazing he actually turned out as well as he did. And so you may remember some years back when there was an officer over in Berlin, a Green Lake County Sheriff's deputy, who was responding to a domestic, and he was shot with a high-powered rifle, and he was killed right at his squad. Well, this was going on at the same time, and I decided to invite this young man, this teen, to come with me to the police funeral. This was very intentional on my part, because in law enforcement, there is a, for lack of a better term, brotherhood that is exposed that becomes very apparent when you go to a police funeral. And I thought, maybe this young man will be touched by that. Maybe, because he always wanted to be in the military. He had a strong affinity for everything military, but his eyesight wasn't good enough for him to join. And uh, I thought, maybe I can get through to him. And I tried that. It didn't work, but I tried that. And I will tell you that I offended every police officer who knew who that young man was. And I had one of the police officers come in and sit down at my table in my office and give me a very polite chewing out about inviting someone from the other side into our sacred ceremony. I give you that story so that you understand that there is this sort of looking out for each other and helping each other in the law enforcement profession. And in that profession, the, the worst sort of enemy that you can find is the one who has killed a police officer. And Alan Randall killed two. In other words, Alan Randall is my Cornelius. When uh, Ellen White was in Salem, Oregon in June 1878, she decided to visit a prison as a guest speaker. And afterwards she wrote this. She said, I had expected to see a set of repulsive-looking men. I've had a great insight. Ellen White. What does she think when she goes to a prison? I expected to see repulsive-looking people. <laughs> but she, was, she says, I was happily disappointed. Many of them seemed to be intelligent. They were men of ability. They were dressed in the coarse but neat prison uniform. Their hair was smooth. Their boots were brushed. I looked upon the varied physiognomies. Not a word we use much anymore. She looked upon the varied uh, characters there before her. She said, she thought to herself, to each of these men have been committed peculiar gifts or talents to be used for the glory of God and the benefit of the world. Can you say that when you look at a group of prisoners? To each of these men has committed, been committed, unique gifts, talents to be used for God and the benefit of the world. She spoke to them the words of John. She said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now, I've given this sermon twice before. Dr. Weber, you heard this sermon before. But you didn't hear this part of it because the first two times I gave this sermon, I had never met Alan Randall. Alan Randall now lives in Nina, and this week I visited him. 
You're all thinking to yourself, I wonder how that went. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, it was awkward. I knew it was the right thing to do. I needed to do that to set a leadership example. And for him to see a police officer, perhaps in a different light, I did it in uniform. I went to his work. I okayed it with his boss. And I met with him. And we had an awkward conversation. He wasn't discourteous in any way. He was very welcoming. But it was just an unusual set of circumstances. I learned. He was very open. He answered any question I asked about what his goals were, about what some of the frustrations were, some of the difficulties uh, that he had gone through. I asked him if he was affiliated with any kind of a a church organization at all. None. He has no real religious training of any kind. I told him I'd pray for him, and he appreciated that. And I can tell you that we will be meeting again. And I don't know what God will do out of that. I have no idea. But I'm glad I had the opportunity to break the barrier and meet with this man, who I know, To him has been committed peculiar gifts and talents to be used for the glory of God and the benefit of the world. And I hope to be a cooperator in that. Well, we started our morning talking about this Kylie, this little girl in a a wheelchair. Inspired by her young daughter, Kylie's mother, Tanya, was moved to forgive this assailant who apologized for his hurtful actions that paralyzed her daughter. Her mother says, forgiveness to us is everything because what forgiveness does is frees us. It frees us so we can live and we can move forward in our lives. We will be able to go forth. Kai will be able to live her life without being held back, without being chained to that resentment. But again, we're not talking about forgiveness today. We're talking about acceptance. Just accepting people, whoever they are, wherever they are. Because every one of us has a Cornelius. Every one of us has at least one person or category of persons that we don't feel comfortable to go to. And Jesus wants us to break those barriers for the accomplishment of the spread of his gospel. So putting Kylie's mother's words in a different way, I put it this way, holding grudges, holding prejudice, having a sense of superiority, about anybody else, locks us in a prison that keeps us from seeing the power of God transforming others. Let me say that again. Holding grudges or prejudice or a sense of superiority locks us in a prison that keeps us from seeing the power of God transforming others and transforming us. That's what he can do when we're willing to go to our Cornelius. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a certainly a selfish old world where it has become our human tendency, all of us, to build walls, to build circles of defense around us that we tend to look at ourselves as better than others. We tend to look at ourselves as right and others who are different as somehow inferior or somehow to be distrusted. 
Father, in the life of Jesus, you gave us the example. Going to that woman at the well in Samaria was such a culture-breaking event, such a wall-breaking event. Ananias going to Saul, even when Saul had developed the reputation as the number one persecutor of the church. Ruth marrying Boaz, the Moabites, the foreigner marrying in to the, the promised line and subsequently becoming a precursor to the Messiah through that lineage. Father, we see through this story of Peter and Cornelius that when we are willing to go where you call us, when we are willing to go even to the ones that we would otherwise reject, that we deeply inside feel feel a distrust of, feel a barrier towards. Father, we recognize that great things can be done. And as the Christian gospel message was taken to the Gentile world and to Rome and throughout Caesarea because of this meeting of Peter being obedient to your leading and meeting with Cornelius, Oh, what powerful things can be done for the gospel, Father. Help us to be willing participants. Show us who our Cornelius is. Call us who you want us to go to. And give us the good sense and the faith to follow where you lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, dismiss us with your blessing. We pray to sing a new song to you and to go wherever you lead us, boldly, with faith even when that is against our own inclinations. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.